welcome back. You're listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I am your host, Matthew Keevil. As always, we're brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do surf by yukonminingalliance.ca and check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And color me excited, because this is our official post-roundup edition, wherein we're going to run some exclusive audio content from the floor of AMEBC's annual roundup conference, which just wrapped up in Vancouver this past week. For the Geology Corner, Leslie's going to take a trip down Korshak Row and stop in to chat with Michael J. Byron, President and CEO of Nighthawk Gold. They will be chatting about the Kolomak Gold property in the Northwest Territories, which lies in the Indian Lake Gold Camp. Leslie's going to drill into previous exploration efforts and what's on the table for 2017. Furthermore, I have a segment from my interview with new Yukon Deputy Premier Ranj Pillay. We'll dig into the uh, newly elected Liberal government in the Yukon Territory and their approach to the mineral extractive industry. We'll also talk a little bit about federal infrastructure money and what could be coming down the pike. Before we get to our roundup content, however, let's take a quick look at the economic and social news on the wire today. Global equities were reportedly off to a rough start, with European markets down broadly 1% across the board, while U.S. equity futures were also lining up the minus column ahead of open. The major headlines to start the week predominantly involved Donald Trump's move to ban people from seven Muslim-majority countries and by-elections in Europe. These two moves have notably supported gold prices. Traders reported subdued activity because of the Lunar New Year holiday in many Asian countries and some nervousness before the Federal Reserve's two-day meeting on monetary policy starting on Tuesday. Spot gold was up roughly $6 per ounce to $1,197, while copper was trading at roughly $2.67 per pound. Copper prices continue to be supported by potential disruption talks, wherein workers at the world's largest copper mine, BHP's Escondida, remain at an impasse over wages and benefits. Furthermore, Freeport McMoran is still not obtained approval to export concentrates from Indonesia and may have to reduce production by as much as 40% if it fails to secure the required permissions. Analysts have speculated that these two combined copper events could reduce monthly production by around 77,000 tons. And let's get right to Leslie's Geology Corner this week, wherein she visits Dr. Michael J. Byron of Nighthawk Gold at the AMEBC Roundup Core Shack. The two will talk the Kolomak Gold property in the Northwest Territories and large-scale greenstone gold discovery. This is a great chat, and it is geology-heavy, so fasten your seatbelts, and I'll see you on the flip side. we got Michael Byron here. He's president and CEO of the company. Um, we're up in the Northwest Territories, um, a I guess an underexplored greenstone belt, where they're uncovering a Kalgoorlie look-alike. Is it, Michael? Would you want to start off? Sure, sure. Um, essentially, Colmac was a, is a, was mined in the '90s. A, a former company called Royal Oak had it, and they had an open pit. And uh, we're working that until 19 about 1997. They went bankrupt. And uh, the the asset then reverted to the federal government of Canada to clean up. Mm. Um, so it sat off everyone's radar for about you know better part of ten years. We came along in 2011 and saw the potential that Colmac has, and, and by that I mean it is a mafic uh, differentiated intrusion. In particular, it's a sill. And when you start looking around the globe and, and for similar hosts, our key and gold hosts. You know, you're you're automatically attracted to the Kalgoorlie example because it's 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 the world's second largest Archean uh, gold camp, 
But more importantly, what Kalgoorlie, uh, the analog tells me is, it had a long history of high grade. And Colmac was never known to have any high grade affiliated with it in terms of distinct domains. So either, you know, when I looked at it, I said, well, either Colmac is barren or no one's ever looked for it. And the cold reality is no one ever looked for it. And we began that search in 2014 uh, when we first got uh, got uh, hooked into this, this, this model-driven exploration that we're doing at Colmac and drilled into a, a zone uh, we called 1.5, just 100 meters north of the old pit. So yeah. it was within a stone's so, throw of the old pit. Yeah, really and we intersected 52 meters of 7.8 grams uh, with a 40 meter true width. So that is totally different Colmac style mineralization. So that's the beginning of what we like to say the rebranding of Colmac, right? It's, it's not just a large tonnage, low grade deposit. It is that, but it also has this potential to get deeper into the mineralized system by virtue of these large domains that might be amenable to underground bulk mining techniques. Right. Well, yeah, because when you think of these greenstone felt gold deposits that we see in Ontario and Quebec and elsewhere, um, they're usually like shear hosted, you know, we have like veins cutting up through granites, um, braiding out. So you said that this is a sill, like an ultramafic sill being an intrusion that follows along some sort of piece of stratigraphy. How is that? How is that prospective, or how is that better or worse than the other types of greenstone deposits that we actually uh, have? Is there no, size potential there more? Well, there's a massive size potential because the sill itself runs uh, upwards of nine kilometers long, uninterrupted, so it's a very planar linear feature, um, up to 150 meters in, in width, and uh, the, the beauty of the sill is it's differentiated, so long story short, there's a chemical separation between the top and the bottom of the sill. Mm. It's more brittle at the top, more favorable for, for gold formation of gold veins because there's a brittleness to that, that top component. So really that's what it, 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 that's the opportunity that we're talking about. You've got a competency contrast between the top of the sill and the surrounding rock. The top of the sill is more favorable for the propagation of quartz veins that are carrying the gold. So it's very similar in a sense of what you're looking at in the other classic camps in that you have that competency contrast theme at play there as well. It's just a different rock type. Sometimes it's a iron formation, sometimes it's a sheared contact between volcanics and seds. You know, but uh, this just happens to be a competent sill. Sweet. I know you were showing me a, a plan map earlier and you were like putting it against um, the Kalgoorlie camp in terms of the structural setting and how this sill kind of sits in. In terms of blue sky potential, it strikes me that you have a lot of room to kind of move and explore that sill to see where else gold might lie. Is that kind of accurate? That's exactly what we're undertaking in this property. And, and um, as I said earlier, 2017 will be our biggest program ever. How many meters is that? We're going to be doing it close to 25,000 meters. So it'll be wow. 22 to 25,000 meters. And we'll be testing more areas that look like zone 1.5 did before we discovered the high grade domain that sits in that zone. And uh, so we're pretty excited about that as well as we're going to test some of the stratigraphy east and south of, of Colmac because we think there's opportunities for these these sills to repeat in the local stratigraphy and, and oh. uh, that's something that we're pretty pretty interested in pursuing. So I guess the theme I want to tell people is just because there was a mine there doesn't mean it was explored because we've already demonstrated that. Yeah. But more importantly, if your primary host wasn't explored, then it's not a stretch to say 
the, the, the stratigraphy immediately around the mine wasn't either, and that's, that's part of what we're doing this summer. Yeah, and it's interesting too, I guess, for other explorers in greenstone belts is to kind of keep an eye out for those sills. They make great hose. When I was working in a project in WA, we had a Gabro sill that just like sucked up all the gold. So it's kind of interesting to see, um, like get the inspiration out there for other explorers and, and belts. Exactly. New ideas, new, new traps. New ideas, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're keen to be involved in this project and have the support that we do. Yeah. And we're looking forward to 217. Cool, well thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, and thanks for joining us as well and hope you're having a great Roundup 2017. And welcome back to studio, and thanks again, Leslie, for another fantastic Geology Corner. If you're interested in more of that content, please head over to our YouTube channel, uh, where we have a video of Leslie doing the full tour of the Core Shack, where she also stops by to talk with Marathon Gold about their Valentine Lake Gold project. In addition, if you're interested in more awesome content on Nighthawk, please head over to northernminer.com and check out senior staff writer Trish Saywell's article, dated January 16th, on Kinross's investment in Nighthawk and the Colomac project. Kinross completed a $10.1 million non-broker private placement in the company, which brings its equity interest to around 9.5%. Uh, so this sort of dovetails with that theme we've been talking about, wherein majors are looking for district-scale opportunities that they can invest in via junior explorers. And now let's get right to my interview with new Deputy Premier of the Yukon Territory, Ranj Pillay. It is early days for the Yukon Liberal government, but they've said some interesting things at Roundup about their one government approach to stakeholder relations. Uh, we dig into that as well as what might be coming down the pike in terms of federal infrastructure spending. So we will quickly run this interview and I'll be back to wrap up. If you want to articulate a little bit more about that strategy and share sure. what one government means to uh, the administration. Um, so two part. Um, first of all, over the last number of years, the Yukon government, working with First Nations governments, have tried to come up with an approach to deal with um, challenges they were having in the regulatory side. Yep. Um, a lot of jurisdictions had already made a move to come up with a mineral development strategy. And so that was something they were trying to do um, at another discussion table. Mm -hmm. And then based on the agreements that exist in the Yukon, there was the um, TTAP, which is the Devolution Transfer Agreement yep. protocol. Yep. Um, and what tended to happen, at least from my perspective, and, and I should add, my the, the job I had just before um, moving into this role was the Executive Director of Champion and Asiac First Nation, which is essentially the large, largest First largest, Nation yep. yeah, and, uh, with Kwanlin Dunn. So that gave me a really good understanding and it built my capacity to understand the, the governance structure that exists in the self-governing First Nations. Um, but what I did see on that side of the table was a lot of my staff continuing to go to meetings and not really, I felt, making any progress. And I think that both sides of the table, the Yukon government and the First Nations that were represented were also not making any headway. So um, from negotiation experience in other roles and just trying to take a common sense approach, I just felt that we should sit at a table together and instead of trying to figure out, you know, a hundred things, let's try to figure out three or four things. Yeah. And, and let's try to build on that. And so the, the approach that I had, I spoke with the First Nations governments um, and just talked about the idea of co-producing an agenda because there's things that they want to talk about and there's things that we want to talk about as mm -hmm. a government and, and try to make it manageable in the conversation mm -hmm. and try to figure out what we could get some agreement on early 
and start to build some trust that way. So that's really what it's about because the First Nations in the Yukon, I, I know of no First Nations in the Yukon that aren't supportive of the mining district yeah. or mining districts or the mining in, industry. They're excited about it. Um, I think that the challenge becomes how do we work within the legislation. And I think there was a breakdown previously, although the industry seemed like it continued to evolve in a positive way, I think that a lot of groups at the table were getting frustrated because there was just nothing happening. Mm -hmm. and, and there was there was obligations like w as a government we've we've inherited these these treaties that have been signed long before yeah. us yeah. so and then they're constitutionally ingrained so essentially you're getting a set of rules that have been signed off on there's contracts and agreements that have been you know I can put it that way that have been signed off on and so the only thing at this point you have an obligation to try to make them work and and that's why when there's legalities that occur you, in 99.9% in .9 of the cases, um, the First Nations government previously have been winning those because it's all based on contractual agreements. So instead of, you know, the continuing that conflict, how do we all work together to try to make sure everybody can reap the benefits of the industry? And, and I know, I, I mean, the other part for us is we really wanted to make sure it doesn't matter what industry is in the Yukon, mm -hmm. um, yeah. that there's an impact for the Yukon. Yeah. And so that the contractors that are there and the people that work there, whether they be First Nation or non-First Nation, that it's just it's about making sure there's an impact for Yukoners. Um, if we're going to put that sort of time and effort and support in from the government side, we need we need that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I would say to people that are watching or or um, keeping an eye on what's happening, it's this is it's an extremely positive thing. This is about trying to move industry forward um, as efficiently as we can, and when we have um, sticky points. Um, having dialogue at one table that we can come up with resolution for them. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's been it's been a good fact-finding time for me this week. Yeah. So I've spoken with CEOs that have, you know, taken projects to production in the U.S. I've talked to people who mm -hmm. are, you know, I've talked to majors this week that are working in multiple jurisdictions, and I've asked them about what they think about our, our legislative side or our, sorry, our regulatory side. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked to people that are working globally, and we talked about, infrastructure as well which I'll touch on in a second yeah, yeah. so absolutely I mean I think there's some things that we sh that we can really get right mm -hmm. when it comes to you know our goal is to make it the best jurisdiction yeah. globally yeah. and because and and that is truly where we want to go and I want to be in my role I want to be a facilitator not a regulator I there's, there's there's people within the government that handle the regulation but I'm trying to roll up my sleeves as somebody that's been entrepreneurial and understands the industry and and trying to provide assistance to the industry um, players and and still be able to facilitate conversations. And then the other the sort of big thing, other thing that you, you dug into a little bit that I wanted to cover was infrastructure. Yeah. And you've announced some of um, some steps to promote exploration to help out earlier stage um, companies. I was wondering, um, is that sort of um, uh, effort or like our movement by the government going to extend to developers and and are you going to look to maybe help or incentivize? later stage projects is in terms of mines and development as well? Or is that something that you strategically have talked about? Or? Yeah, um, so we leave here tomorrow, yeah. and and then we spend a week um, back in the Yukon um, handling our other files and working with our constituents, and then we're in Ottawa. Um, and so the Ottawa meetings, many of them are gonna focus on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So there's already been a dialogue. Um, uh, the previous government had um, started to sketch out and scoped out an infrastructure, larger infrastructure spend. Yep. Um, 
so that some of the, the, the pieces that we're working through now that we've again inherited something is yeah. uh, understanding um, the financial model mm-hmm. that it, that's going to take to put it in place okay. and, and secondly the fact that the way that the proposal was structured um, and the federal government have emphasized this that we would need in any case to have the First Nation partners on side okay. with that new infrastructure. Okay. okay. That we feel comfortable about, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, the money side is just trying to figure out how we how we flow it. My biggest challenge going after this week is, I, I kind of, in the early stages, felt that I could prioritize the spend based on where it seemed like people were making the most progress to production. Yeah. My yeah. challenge now is, you know, I've got sort of three different areas of the Yukon where people are indicating that they're moving very quickly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're going to be moving into um, submission to for the reg- and through the regulatory piece yeah. very quickly. Yeah. And so it's making sure that we maximize benefits for Yukoners mm-hmm. while at the same time meeting the needs of industry and working in partnership. It's a great, it's a good model. I mean, the, mm-hmm. what's been tabled is, um, you know, the federal government covering, you know, a large portion of the infrastructure spend, and then and then uh, the uh, corporate entities working with the Yukon government. So, so in, industry, it's great. Welcome back. So that was yeah, that was a great uh, little segment. Um, I'll be doing something longer form with that as well because I did have a chance to talk to Ranch for about forty minutes at Roundup. Uh, so there'll be plenty of uh, juicy material on uh, what the new Yukon Liberal government might have planned for the mining industry uh, moving forward. Um, as far as other stories we're looking at in the news today, uh, down uh, this morning it came down uh, that uh, New Gold has experienced another capex creep at its Rainy River development. Uh, the capital expenditures have risen by roughly another hundred million dollars. The company also announced it would be delaying a production announcement until September. So that marks a three-month delay um, on original guidance. So I'll be hopping on uh, New Gold's conference call a little bit later today and seeing what's going on with the Rainy River story. As far as what we have on the front page at the time of recording, uh, we continue to have some really good roundup material. Leslie's Geoscience BC article is now up. That focuses on the Search 2 geophysical project uh, in BC and what those results may mean. Uh, Meanwhile, we're continuing to crank out the author some top five lists. Uh, this week we have for you the world's largest gold reserves in 2016 and the five highest grade zinc projects in the world. Uh, so yeah, it's another great uh, great excuse to subscribe. Um, and as always, please do uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our YouTube channel, and do us a big favor and give us a nice old big rating there on iTunes because that helps us out a ton. And this has been Matthew Keevil reporting with the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.